Hello there, welcome back to Temporary Fandoms. Um, hopefully you have been listening to a significantly large amount of fall and uh, you're still with us and joining us on this journey. Um, still with us, we have John Henderson. Hey, John. Hi. Uh, Fliss Kitson. Hey, Fliss. Hello. Uh, Jonathan Fisher. Hey, Hi John. There. And obviously Nick and myself. You are right, Nick? Yeah, not bad. Okay, so actually. we're going to start. Yeah, Nick, this is like Nick's Christmas. <laughs> uh, I mean, he has been building up. If you, a regular listeners will know that there have been lots of references to the fall coming, and lots of references to how unhappy I may be to that happening. But I'm sort of resigned to it now, and I've been listening to some fall records for the first time in my life. So hopefully, I liked them more than I liked Can. Anyway, um, we're going to start. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. I've, right. Already, I've already got. I've already got incredulous looks. Fantastic. So we're going to start. Yeah. <laughs> um, Fliss, if you want to know my opinions about Can, uh, I go on a bit of a five-minute rant about Tago Mago uh, a couple of episodes ago. So we can find that for you, and we can play it to you to you later. Um, we're going to start. <laughs> I'm gonna, we're going to start with Live at the Witch Trials, 1979. I'm going to come over to you, John. Um, Am I right in thinking there was an EP before the album? There was uh, an EP and then there was a seven inch single. Yeah. I mean, I, I know there's various uh, comments about how the production was a bit weird and maybe Marty e. Smith was a bit ill. It feels very ramshackle. Um, and obviously for, there's a lot of energy with that. Um, do you think, does anybody know whether, was this how they wanted it to sound or was this a, it's good enough? I don't really think it was how all of them wanted it to sound. And I mentioned in the, the intro that Carl, Carl Burns, the drummer, uh, spent a lot of time while Mark was ill and they, they couldn't record in the studio, just getting his drum to sound kind of his fantasy version of what drums should sound like. And it didn't necessarily suit the rest of the band. And of course they had to record it. I mean, it's not a live album, but they had to almost record it live because they only had one or two days in the studio to do the whole album. Okay, they um, sound amazing though on Live at the Witch Trials. Well, the drums sound amazing because they spent you know three days in the studio recording them, or, or well, yeah, yeah. three days in the studio miking them and setting yeah. up the sound, and then two days for everyone else. Um, one of my favorite, sorry, it's no, one no, of my favorite, yeah, it's one of my favorite things about that whole album is the drums. Like Carl yeah. Burns is amazing, so good, and yeah, I'm grateful that he spent all that time being nerdy about it. I certainly don't spend any time being nerdy about my drum kit and I think I maybe should. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I've already decided before this, I'm not going to ask who was which musician in which album because I lost track doing any form of research for this. Um, when there's a new drummer or a new bassist or a new guitarist, I'm expecting Nick to tell me or for somebody else to say there's been a change. I'm just assuming there's a different lineup in every album apart from Bricks, who turns up for a bit, and then she's around for a bit, and then Mark Riley's around for a bit. Um, so, John, was was this the first album you heard? This was the first album I heard by them, and I bought it uh, when it came out in America with a slightly different track listing. Um, okay. they, they took off two songs and they added uh, Various Times, which was the B-side of the single that preceded it. And mm. um, this and the Slits Cut, they were actually the first two records I ever bought with my own money. Wow. So there you that's go. much cooler than most people's. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> mine is not. My, my, the first record I bought with my own money was Musical Youth. 
That's not bad. That's not bad. I can handle some. Um, mine was dirty. mine was Sly Fox. Let's go all the way. Oh yeah. Because so I was very happy with when I when I did, when I worked it out. That was I went to Woolworths uh, and bought a seven inch single in Wolverhampton city city centre. Um, so Fliss, obviously, as you've just said, Joe, you think the drums are amazing, and as a drummer. Um, music, music-wise, musicianship. What do you think this al- this album does? Um, I think it's quite primitive, but I think a lot of the fall is primitive, actually, with kind of intelligent lyrics and um, hooks, a lot of hooks, and I guess it's kind of the beginning of the repetitiveness, which just carried out throughout their career, um, which is probably. I mean, is that what post-punk is? Is that what post-punk means? The repetitiveness, they, they start that. I mean, that's certainly a theme that carries on throughout all of the albums, isn't it? Well, I mean, the, I mean yeah, the, the whole repetition, repetition, repetition thing, I, I, as a brief aside, while I was listening to all the, while I was listening to all the albums for, for this and the next episodes, the whole repetition thing was actually great because very early on in a song, I knew if I was going to like it. Because whatever I was listening to was just going to repeat. Because uh, it'll be the same six minutes later. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly. Very handy. Um, Joe uh, Fish, um, how is this one for you? I know that you're a big full fan. You've you know you've listened to them all um, multiple times. Where, where's this one fit for you? Yeah, I, I love this stuff. I love the the early one. This um, the, all the early ones really. I think I did hear this. I suppose I got into the fall in the eight, late eighties. And I heard this in the early 90s, I suppose. So it was one of the early ones I got into. Yeah, I love it. I love the punk element of this one, the kind of underground um, underground medicine sort of thing of it. Those kind of the more punky bits, I think, are really good in this. It's, I suppose it, it, it could be a bit standard punk, maybe, but I still like that about this record. Makes it poppy, in a way. Mm. Yeah, I guess. Um, I mean, I didn't know what I was going to be listening to. I expected it would be punk and post-punk. And post-punk was, if, I, if I'm honest, it's, it's one of those sort of the genres that sometimes leaves me a, a, a bit cold. Um, but what was the reception to this when it came out? I mean, did it break them into a stratosphere, John? Or was, was there a whole sort of meh from the new Musical Express, etc.? No, it was, um, it, it was received indifferently I, I would say some people really loved it some people really hated it it did manage to get an american release which at the time was a pretty big deal um if you look at bigger bands like Susie and the banshees or the damned or x-ray specs from just before then none of those had american records out at really ever until many years later when cds came about so for the fall to to have a major label distributed album at that point was really unusual um but it didn't sell at all. And for a long time, you could find copies of it for a dollar in the shop. It's brand new. Oh. And um, the the second record didn't get picked up. So I wouldn't say that they did real well in America. In, in the UK, they had their fan base, mm-hmm. uh, but they were one of the first post-punk bands, really, to put a record out. So they did get some attention because of that, but they also got some curious stares because of that. I think a lot of people didn't quite know what this was. It wasn't really punk. The band itself was really influenced by a lot of American garage bands from the 60s. They really loved the Seeds, Question Mark and Mysterians and things like that. And so it didn't quite have its place yet. And I think the first album 
is a different band than than what followed. To be honest, okay. I mean, for me, it was uh, it was more garagey than I expected. Okay, so Live the Witch Trials came out. Who were their peers? I mean, did they have peers? Was uh, there anybody? Did the they have peers? The peer the fall, alternative TV um, would have been peers. Um, uh-huh. Mark Perry from Alternative TV actually ran Step Forward, the label that put out the album. Okay. And there were a lot of similarities between the two of them. That would be the mm-hmm. obvious one, I would say. Wasn't it, um, was it the manager of the Buzzcocks at the time who funded their first single? Is that, is that right? That, that was Richard Boone, who managed the uh-huh. Buzzcocks. Uh, later was the, the label director for Rough Trade during a really big, uh, you know, big streak for them. Uh, he had a label, New Hormones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, they put out a bunch of things, most of which didn't quite take off. Dislocation Dance. Ludus, some Pete, Pete uh, Shelley side project things, uh, and he didn't have money to press the fall single. Right. The EP, actually. Okay. Okay. Um, okay, so unless anyone's, thing, anyone's got anything pressing to say about Live at the Witch Tiles, I'm going to move on to Dragnet, which came out, what, six months after their first album? Yep. Um, yeah. And also had, for me, Unexpected Cowbell. <laughs> which I really did not see coming. So, so what was the difference? I mean, for me, the first one I, I got to quite like. I really struggled with Dragnet, but maybe I need a few more listens. But mm-hmm. in terms of how the record was put together, um, what headspace were the band in? Was it the same lineup from the first one? What was going on? Um, John, start with you and then sort of move around. Um, it was almost an entirely different lineup. Mark, Marky Smith stayed he, and he was the fall. And Mark Riley went from being the bass player to the guitarist. The rest of the band was brand new. And some of the songs were songs uh, Martin Brahma had co-written that didn't get recorded uh, earlier. And Staff Nine, which is a band that opened for the fall, they threw in a bunch of songs uh, because two of their members did become new members. The Cowbell uh, would have been a guy Mike named uh, Mike Lee, who's a really strange older character yeah, the great story. Uh, didn't fit in the band. I don't think he understood it at all. Uh-huh. But um, he's responsible for a lot of the strange sounds on that record. I think he was like a rockabilly drummer. No, he kind of and he kind of wore the suits and everything, which is just hard to picture with the. Form. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what they call those. Um, yeah, bolo ties. You know, like they wear in like the, a teddy boy thing. Southwestern. Yeah, and, and teddy boy stuff. And he was really into it. And he wasn't. He wasn't really a great drummer. He didn't last real long in the fall. Um, and, but yeah, th- that that album has a lot of him on it. Doesn't sound like any other fall record. So, so how did he end up in the fall? I don't know how anyone ends up in the fall, Ewan. Does um, everybody end up in the fall? <laughs> it, it, it's probably something like Mark Smith ran into him at the chip shop and he needed a drummer. I mean, yeah. almost literally, that's how it, things like that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Fliss, um, how did this one stand for you? I mean, obviously, you mentioned the drumming. Uh, you loved the drumming in the first album. Um, where was your entry point for The Fall, actually? Where did you come into? What was the first one you listened to? Do you know what? It's. I'm going to be totally honest, because that's what I'm here for. Absolutely. Um, I actually got into The Fall first from being really fascinated by the fandom because I had joined the Nightingales actually I hadn't joined it was years before that but I had was friends with the Nightingales and discovered the fall 
fandom. They were all talking about it. The drummer of the Nightingales at the time, Darren, was obsessed with the fall, as was everyone around me at that time. And I spent so much time like trawling through that fall forum, not even knowing anything really about the music, but just obsessed with kind of watching this fan group talk and row and be so intense. And it was weird. I thought it was weird. Um, and that was before I'd even really delved into the music because I kind of was cut off by that a little bit, if I'm honest, um, just from, you know, the intensity of it. But then I was like, well, I kind of need to know why these guys are all kind of so into this. And then I saw them live and loved it, was very influenced by it musically, um, found a lot of what how I played as well as a musician was very similar in ways, um, which was great because I never heard of it before, so it was just another inspiration. And then I went back to Hex straight away. And I've got to be honest, I actually have never got on with Dragnet. I okay. I am a full fan, I'd say, but I'm not an obsessive fan at all. And if I listen to it once, I, I'm not going to listen to it again, and I haven't really listened to Dragnet again. I'm really okay. glad you said that. My notes were, I sort of struggled to get through this, and as it was the second album, I started to feel a bit of dread about what was to come. Uh, whew, those were my notes. <laughs> I, yeah, okay. I really, really, really struggled with this one. I, I wow. didn't know which direction the band was going to go after the first one. And I don't know, there was nothing that sort of kept me, kept me happy, kept me clinging to it, I guess. Um, John. It's a very dark and dense record. And um, I think it's the only fall record that you could really describe best as transitional. Um, mm -hmm. They became something much more powerful shortly thereafter this. Uh, but yeah, the production was horrible. There wasn't really a sense that they knew what they were trying to achieve as an album. So it's all over the place. And, and uh, after a while, I've come to love it. And I think fans have come to love it. But unlike the first one, this one did not get much in the way of positive press, except for a few real you know, devoted fanatics. Do you think it was a case of like the, the archetypal difficult second album? It's, well, the first one's come out. Let's get another one out. And often bands spend so long putting the first one together that the second one is not necessarily you know, fully formed. It's funny that you say that actually, Yun, because it's exactly the opposite. <laughs> the, the, the first album really consisted of very early fall songs that they had just waited to record a long time. When they went in to record Live at the Witch Trials, there was a big battle between Mark and Martin, who were really at that point the co-leaders of the band, because Martin wanted to record this new album that they had. Mark was, said, let's get the old stuff out of the way. And that's what ended up happening because Kay Carroll, who was the manager, was also Mark's partner at that time. And you know, it's kind of two against one. Um, when they went in to record the second one, the question was, what do we do with all this late period, first lineup fall material? And they pilfered about half the songs on the record from that. But those were songs that Martin wrote and the new people hadn't really played on them or performed them. If they had been done as fall songs when Martin was in the band or as Blue Orchid songs, and one of them was, it would have been a different story. And the rest were uh, basically songs taken from Staff Nine, who were a bunch of teenagers that, you know, came up with some good tunes, but they were hugely fall inspired. 
So what you have on the second album is largely a band of fall fans trying to sound like what they thought the fall should sound like. Wow, so is that the first case of there being a fall covers band, essentially, or a tribute act? <laughs> but the tribute act was the fall and by the second album. Yeah, I think I think largely so. Um, Mark hadn't really become the, the great lyricist that he did shortly thereafter. And the band were just, you know, Mark Riley had changed to guitar, so he wasn't used to that. They lost their keyboard player who'd been a big part of the early fall sound. Uh, and they, they were just young guys. And I think that they weren't quite the capable musicians that, that they became. A guy like Steve Hanley might be, I don't know about this for sure, but he might be the person in, who lasted longer in the fall than any other member except for yeah, Mark I think pretty sure that would be him. Yeah. I mean, I, I love this album, um, but having been through the whole discography a couple of times, I, I noticed that, yeah, there seems to be a lot of people were, Dragnet didn't seem to be that into it. But um, for a long time, I had like these first three albums on cassette and didn't really know the order of them. It's like those pre-internet times when you just had records, but didn't really know where they came from, if you know what I mean. So they all kind of blended together for me. I didn't really differentiate them very much. But there's so many of those lovely little fall details on there, like the, the bit in Your Heart Out, where uh, Marky Smith stops to say, well, here's a joke to cheer you up. And then <laughs> I just love stuff like that. I mean, and then the joke's nothing. It's just nonsense. It's, but, you know, like Ian Curtis never stopped to tell a joke in the middle of a song. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I've got a thought in my head. I'm going to try and get rid of um, Jay Fisher. Um, so, how about you? Where, where does this sit with you? I mean, if it's a difficult album for a lot of people to get into, um, how do you find it? Yeah, I suppose I'm I'm with everyone else on this. It's it's not quite as good as uh, the first one for me, but I I still really love it. And um, Psychic Dance Hall is brilliant. Yeah, uh, Inspector versus Rector. Yeah, I think is an incredible thing and. And stands up with anything actually. It's, it, it, it stands apart from anything on those first two albums actually. Spectre versus Rector, sheer craziness of that sound. I think that's that's wonderful that one. Um, for me, there was a sort of there was a maybe it's because I was picturing it in my head. There was a sort of an image of oh they're recording it in the studio and Marky Smith just sort of walking around deciding when the song will finish. Um, it, some songs seem to be a sort of. Yeah, yeah, I can just picture someone walking around going, yeah, they're going to carry on, we're going to carry on, done. Uh, John, you're waving a hand. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that Martin was a more sort of, uh, I don't want to say formulaic, but he wrote songs that that had a more standard format. Mm -hmm. And you're probably right about him waving his hands and, and, and all that on there. Um, oh, I also wanted to mention one thing, which I think it was Nick who said something about, you know, you didn't see Ian Curtis make a joke. And just as a point of trivia, uh, the Fall and Joy Division shared the same rehearsal space. Yes. And if you've ever seen the video for Level Terrace Apart, where they're mm -hmm. in this big rehearsal room, they go through the brick door, it's sort of the, the main video for Level Terrace Apart. That's actually where both bands recorded and uh, they had alternate days. It just looks like a big derelict building, doesn't it, in that video? It kind of was. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so we're going to move on to Grotesque parenthesis after the gram close parenthesis um so this was what 1980 um is it worth asking about the lineup or i'm just gonna let's just assume the lineup is is relatively changing unless there's a I major change probably pretty much the same no john it's it's the same it's Apart the drummer aside from the drummer yeah right sorry Nick. Uh, okay so let's let's i'm gonna fly this one i'm gonna fly straight to fliss for the first time 
uh, for the first one. Um, Fliss, where does this sit with you? I mean, if Dragnet was a bit more, you listen to it once, ah, can't quite get back to it. How about this? How about this one, the follow-up? Yeah, I think this. They're back on their game on this album. It's really good. I think it's full of quite a lot of hit songs. Um, I don't know loads about it again either. Like you guys are more of the fact people in this. Tell us about the feels. Podcast. Tell us about the feels. Yeah. Um, but it, honestly, it has been a while since I've listened to this one. Um, but it's got totally wired on it, hasn't it? Actually, um, I think that was a single. Uh, oh, was it? The thing with the fall is, is like alongside all these albums, and we're going through it album by album. Yeah, actually, missing so many great songs by just doing the albums because they did so many extra singles that just didn't come out on any albums. But obviously, later on, when you had the CD reissues, they always. I think it was on the reissue then, yeah, because yeah, so, I'm obviously a reissue gal. Yeah, so. yeah, and so um, <laughs> totally wide, and how I wrote Elastic Man, I think, about, yeah. appended yeah. to the end of the CD Ooh, reissues, but they're they're classic songs. Wouldn't like them to be missed. But then this yeah. was this was sort of the case with a lot of bands. I mean, even you go as far back as the Beatles, you could easily pluck five or six of the Beatles' biggest, most famous songs that don't exist on a single album. Mm -hmm. And then that's sort of through the 80s, early 90s, there were a lot of bands. Um, I mean, I'm going to reference the bands I grew up listening to, like the ones that stuff from Pop Will Eat Itself, who had singles that didn't exist on albums. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. sort of died a little bit now. But yeah, no, that, that's def definitely a, a thing. So, um, so John, go, gonna gonna go back over to you. What was going on in their lives at the moment? I mean, when they were making this one. Well, you know, since we're kind of at the early point of the fall, the one point I'd like to make is, uh, if you they change labels many times, and if you go through those labels, typically, you could make a fairly good argument that their best record for any given label was the first record for that label. So here. They've. Uh, I think that part of the renewal of the band was they left Step Forward, which was falling apart. They signed with Rough Trade, which at the time was like a really hot label if you were into a very esoteric kind of you know new things. And um, Jeff Travis, who owned Rough Trade, was one of the co-producers on the album, along with Mayo Thompson from the Red Crayola, who also worked for Rough Trade. And uh, I think that they gave it a lot of focus. I think the fall felt like they had something to prove and uh, the band had been playing together for a long time. I should mention an interesting fact about the lineup change is that the new drummer was Paul Hanley, Steve's brother, and they'd played together a lot. So they already had that synchronicity. So he wasn't so much like a new member, but kind of a half new member, if you will. Yeah. Is it just Paul on this one? So it's, it's not until the next album that we have Paul and Carl Burns together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So was, so was Marky e. Smith becoming... Because obviously Marky Smith has the persona as well as the artist. And was he becoming the persona by this point? Was, you know, was he becoming bigger than himself as, as a singer? Or was he still just Marky Smith, lead singer of the fall? No, I think that uh, you hit upon a really important fact that drives the rest of the fall. Uh, when Mark started going out with Kay Carroll, the manager, Kay was notorious for being such a hard ass on every level. And there's actually a videotape of her on, uh, she's, she's passed away recently as well, but there's videotape on YouTube of her, video on YouTube, uh, where she's just railing some promoter at trying to garner like a bigger guarantee. And the promoter's like, we'll give you 200 pounds. And she's like, 1200, you goddamn motherfucker, da, 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 da. And just going <laughs> on and on. And she got away with it a lot of the time. And she really was a firm believer that Mark was a genius and Martin Brahms told me, and I think it's probably pretty true, that 
Mark sort of sat there silently watching what Kay did and eventually started kind of taking those bits from her personality until he was the undisputed leader oh. of the fall. So, so Kay Carroll was the proto-Marquis Smith. Huh? Kay Carroll was the proto-Marquis Smith. She was the proto-Marquis Smith. I think that's very true. And by the time of Grotesque, uh, I think he'd reached a point where he was undisputably the leader. No one was going to ever challenge it again. But he wasn't so solid in his ego about it that he, I mean, it's, this is much more of a band record than anything they really did afterwards. So it was a nice balance between his really intense ego and the rest of the band's own input. Mm -hmm. It started to fall apart not terribly long after this. I think you can really, really hear the difference on this one. It, it feels like the first proper classic full album to me, this one. It feels very singular. Things like New Face in Hell are just, are just amazing, mm. I think, on this one. Um, I want to say the cover's really good as well, because I love the cover. It's grotesque. Is this a Mark I love the cover. It's a great cover. It's Mark's sister, I think, who did drew that, yeah. Yeah. And she does some oh, others yeah. as well. A quick question, uh, John Fisher. Um, Manchester, Marky Smith from Manchester, Faller from Manchester. Is there a... Is there a thing, of, or you're Manchester adjacent, if I've, if I've got it slightly wrong, uh, but is there a thing of ownership of bands from where you're from? There are certain bands that I gave up, I got obsessed by because they were from down the road. Um, was The Fall one of those for you? Yeah, I suppose. I suppose that's true. But I, when I got into music, most of the bands were from Manchester. Just strange. Oh, such a Manchester thing to say. Yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> it was like the Fall, the Smiths, um, all that stuff. New Order, Joy Division. But I didn't think that it was all from Manchester. It, it never occurred to me at the time. Looking back, it's like yeah, everything yeah. was. From, and I just thought everyone just liked everything from their city. I didn't. It didn't occur to me that that was special. I just thought you liked what your city did. Which is strange. But, I mean, <laughs> I was like 13, 14. You don't really think about this shit, do you? Yeah. 13, 14. No, I, 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 God, what, I was listening to Assault with a Deadly Pepper when I was 13 and 14, and they definitely didn't come from Wolverhampton. Um, okay, so we've gone through <laughs> the early Mark One. We've gone through <laughs> the first few albums, but we're going to squeeze in an EP, uh, which is Slates, which was a year later. I've listened to this probably more times than I've listened to anything else over the last few weeks, mainly because it was exactly the amount of time from leaving work, going to the supermarket and getting home. Um, I actually, this, this is the first time I started to really like what I was listening to. Al although I will say that with a caveat, um, every time I was listening to it, I'd get halfway through Older Lover and go, oh God, this is annoying me. For a band that's had multiple EPs and multiple albums, why is this EP special? Why are we doing this EP, John? I think because it's the best fall record, just full stop. They were uh, even tighter than they were on Grotesque. I think the songs were amazing. And they started to create uh, a really different atmosphere in the studio. Like they really took advantage of the atmosphere. It wasn't a, just a really good band playing in a studio, but they were experimenting with things. Adrian Sherwood, uh, mixed a song or two on the EP, uh, giving it a different feel. And Mark's lyrics start to disintegrate a little bit. There were a lot of story songs on Grotesque, and here it's much more impressionistic. It just all came together really beautifully. Uh, I think this through the next one, which we'll talk about, but 
This was their best record, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, before we did this, Nick did say one of the things he likes about the four is that everybody who's a Falls fan has a different opinion over what their best record is. Nick, is this your best record? Um, well, the thing is, I usually say that my favorite Fall album is usually the one I'm listening to at the moment. Because if you, you know, when I'm listening to Live at the Witch Trials, that's my favorite Fall record. Um, and even with Dragnet, probably the, while I'm listening to it, that's my favorite Fall record. Usually, if asked, though, I, I have a different one that I default to, and it's it's a, a little bit later. So uh, we'll come back to that. But but Slates is a pretty special record, and that's why, even though it's an EP, it's the only EP I decided we had to include in this in the full sort of studio album discography, because it it just it feels like an important record in the in the kind of full canon. Um. So who who else was who was doing stuff in 1981 around that time? Because obviously, you know, punk is sort of been and sort of gone. Post punk was sort. Of, I mean, who were there? I'm going to use the word peers again, but basically, who else was releasing stuff that could be comparable? Comparable, I think this is when you start to see bands that uh, fill the similar spot. I think the Nightingales would be a really good point. We've got Fliss here. Um, but, you know, Killing Joke was really getting huge in a way. It was a, it was a weird moment because a lot of the original punk followers who became musicians in post-punk bands at this point things were starting to get so vast and it, it exploded mm. in so many directions uh it wasn't you know it's was just a couple of years after this that you had things like frankie goes to hollywood which yeah. was you know consisted of people that kind of grew up with punk uh on the other hand you had you know just all these odd little bands uh public image started doing the double drum thing on flowers of romance around this time uh the cure were picking up steam and it's really hard to say i think you saw a really inventive group of people go in so many directions that it becomes impossible to follow. Okay, um, and on that, um, because obviously there were so many different flavors, subgenres of post-punk and that went in various different ways. Um, Fliss, what what was your um, alternative music in your formative years? Just so I know where you're coming from. Like, I, was, I, I was a Grebo kid from the Midlands. John, if you need to look it up, basically greasy kids from Wolverhampton who, who liked guitar slash skate stuff. Um, Fliss, what was yours? Oh, well, I was a massive, that was probably, if you're going alternative as in rock alternative, but I was Riot Girl through and through mm -hmm. from 90, yeah, 98 onwards. I was probably started listening to that. Yeah, I wasn't born when these albums that we're talking about came out, but it doesn't mean I can't go back oh, and listen I to them. I was sick. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And, it was, yeah, it was female fronted. Oh, that's not a genre, but you know, the the right girl scene was okay. my thing. And so, when you've gone, when you've moved, obviously, as we all have, when you go, you've moved back in through history, find going through the various genres that influenced who influenced who influenced what you like now. Um, whereabouts in the punk and post monk did you post monk post punk did you gravitate towards? Where did I gravitate towards uh, the fall or just post-punk in general? Yeah, just, yeah, post-punk in general. You know, I find the post-punk thing quite strange because the Nightingales, I don't want to talk about us loads, but um, we always get put in that bracket. I mean, it was literally post-punk, yes. But I feel it's more of an attitude. It's not a sound of music I mean I think the repetitive thing is quite 
um, common, but I find it more of a punk attitude that represents that kind of era of music. I was really into Gang of Four and Wire. I went back to that quite early. Um, and yeah, everyone was kind of into the fall when I was listening to that. So, and that's how I was led to it. I think I had about three friends who were into the fall, but they were also the same three friends that would go on about how great Bill Hicks was and that nobody else was as good as Bill Hicks. So I probably had an issue with them at, as well at the time. Um, I'm not going to ask really you, probably Bill Hicks is just, because that's a tangent I don't want to go down. <laughs> but, uh... No, no, it's not so much Bill Hicks. It was a certain type of person who would go on about Bill Hicks. Right. And there was also and, the and, same... and, and a certain type of person who likes the fall. Is this, is this what we're going, you in? No, I just said that three of my friends... <laughs> oh, you wait till later. Anyway, uh, Jay Fisher, how is this EP for you? Yeah, I love it. I think it's brilliant. It's um, as good as everyone's saying. Um, just thinking about the conversation before, when I got into the fall, I'd, I didn't, I'd never heard the term post-punk. I didn't know that was a thing. I'd not heard Gang of Four or, you know, Why or any of those sorts of things. I didn't know there's other things a bit like that. So I was so excited when I discovered those those other things after listening to The Fall. There's other stuff like this as well. It was incredible to me. I just thought it was totally on its own. There's nothing like, everything else oh, yeah. was like New Order. And then there was The Fall. That's how I saw things. And then you discovered there was other bands not from Manchester. <laughs> that was unbelievable. I couldn't, I couldn't believe that. I still don't quite. Yeah, but no, none it. of them were as good though, right? No. I just no, wanted to say though, also around, uh, we're talking about what was happening in music around this time and looking at the bands that were maybe you'd say were similar to The Fall. Around this time, you've kind of got that burgeoning goth scene and you would never really describe The Fall as goth. And yet, if you were to kind of list what defines a goth band, at least in the kind of idea of what they were in, what goth bands were in the eighties, you could probably tack a lot of those things onto the fall. The way oh, that the instrumentation totally. sounded, the themes, um, you know, so they were very, very goth adjacent. Yeah, I've got some comments about um, albums later on, uh, probably in the next episode, which is the first time I, I was surprised by how gothy it sounded. There was a sort of very uh, Sisters of Mercy or mission bass type sound coming through, but, but we'll get to that a little bit more uh later um okay so we're going to move on to what many people claim or argue is the greatest um fall album also possibly one of the most controversial um which um, we're gonna have to address a little bit which is hex induction hour sound wise and I'm, i don't know fully what was going on in their lives at that time um this seems angry and a lot angrier than previous stuff I wrote down the words full of piss and vinegar, uh, which was the sound I was sort of getting when I, when I, I got from that. Fliss, is that, was there any reason why this was, seems to me to be a very angry lashing out record or was it just the way their sound was going? I think, yeah, um, Marky e. Smith was definitely um, out to write an album that was against the bland and a kind of fuck you. They thought it was their last album, or at least he did. Um, <clears throat> so I've read. Anyway, do pitch in if you know more facts. I, I, I mean, why, why did he think that? Do you, um, John, do you know the background to that? I think that uh, there started to become a lot of tension between Mark E. Smith and Mark Riley. Mm, okay. uh, Mark really wrote most of the music 
you know, Aidley. Mark Riley. Just said it by, yeah, the rest of the band. But um, Mark wanted more power. And I think it had reached the point where Mark had about as much power as there was to be had without just playing with session musicians. And that set the scene for a little bit of a showdown, which happens uh, a bit later with Mark Riley. And this is right. I think it was, it was seen as probably their last record. It was recorded in a bunch of different places, really odd places, Iceland and a movie theater and, mm -hmm. and things like that. And um, they kind of held it together for one more after that. But I think that this was the swan song of, of this era of the fall in reality. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, okay. Bef before we're going to move on, I'm, like, I'm going to address the, the the massive elephant in the room with this album because obviously we can't go through everything without uh, sort of brush things aside. This was very controversial lyrically, and by lyrically, I'm talking like first one, song one. Uh, yeah. I'm not going to repeat what was said. It, there's plenty of, of discussion of it on the internet. Um, now I know that Marky Smith was trying to sort of be a bit confrontational. Mm. And I, I get that it's a comment on, to on perceived tokenism and you know, he's not necessarily known for his politically correct stance uh, or well, yeah, what people would refer to as PC. Um, I mean, in my opinion, at its best, it's fucking misguided. And even when I've seen him be interviewed about it, it he still hasn't seemed to address it in a sort of male culpa type way although when they got re-released 20 years later i believe they changed the lyrics so obviously did they he, yeah yeah apparently there was when, when he redid when he re started singing the song uh later on that I'd word be, got, that, well they did i mean they very rarely went back and sang old songs so i'd be surprised uh, if the classical was a song that they well what i was reading what i was reading a few times in a few places while i was doing this about 2002 when they started playing it a few more times that lyric had been changed so okay, maybe it, might, it may have happened once. I mean, they did occasionally pluck a random song from their past and, and replay it. But it, basically, one thing with the four when you went to see them live is they'd mostly be playing stuff from the last one or two albums. They never kind of recycle the kind of greatest hits tour kind of thing. In O2, so, though, I John, think they did do the John. odd one, didn't they? In O2, yeah, yeah. oh, absolutely. And around that time, they were bringing these classic songs back into yeah. It. So I'm not, yeah, it's not impossible. Like you say, once just, or twice. They wouldn't do it often. Yeah, there were there were times when occasionally they'd go back and do an old song. But I have to say, in fairness, almost every time they did that, the lyrics changed. It wasn't just <laughs> with this particular song. Yeah. And strangely enough, I actually put out a fall record, a slightly known fact. Um, and uh, I, I actually had a conversation with with Mark about this because um, I've worked for various labels and, and major labels and publishers. And it's interesting because one label that I worked for, which I won't name, they had their urban music division, which was the uh, black music, essentially soul, modern soul, hip hop and things like that. And then they had the other divisions, which could be anything from pop and rock to jazz, heavy metal, country music. And those two groups of people that, that worked for those divisions really never met or cooperated. And it was shocking to me to learn this. Uh, because there'd be times I'd be sitting in a meeting room waiting for people and a bunch of black people would come in, which was fine. And they would look at me like, what is this white boy doing here? And Mark's explanation was essentially that, he, that, that um, I won't mention the phrase, but the adjective before it is obligatory. And he basically said, you know, that's just what I saw in a lot of things where, you know, there's this obligatory group of people that we have to include to sort of, you know, 
justify ourselves or to present this facade or to keep within the laws. And to me, I always interpreted that as a very anti-racist line that mm -hmm. he made by mocking that. Um, it's a little harder to defend that now simply because he did become a much more conservative guy with sometimes very uh, xenophobic and nationalistic views uh, as life continued. But at the time I heard that, and I remember being a little shocked at hearing it and just thinking, well, I know exactly what he's talking about. And I was a young guy then. Later, it made even more sense to me. So I think a lot of that controversy is just misguided. Um, is, does anybody know if there's any truth to the rumor that, um, is that Motown was interested in distributing them in the US? That's, and, yeah, that's uh, where that, that's why I mentioned the record label thing, yeah. because that was his comment was you go to America and you'll see like the soul division or the, you know, the urban music division and every other division. And there's just no crossover, which is unusual because when you go back into the sixties and stuff, you know, you would, you would see more of that than you did by the eighties. The Motown story is just total BS. There's no truth <laughs> to that whatsoever. Um, it's a great story, you know. Do but... you think why they went with camera? Because cam weren't camera a metal label? Largely, they were a metal label, kind of like a they would new just wave like of do whatever the fuck you, Yeah, sorry, they would like do whatever the fuck you want. We don't care. So he had quite a big, he had rain. Rough Trade wouldn't have released that song. Come on. Rough Trade wouldn't have because Rough Trade, for all of its, you know, wonderful moments and, and uh, support of really great bands, they were very conservatives. And I, and I have several bands, the Nightingales, uh, Blue Orchids, um, there's a couple of others. Of bands on my label were on Rough Trade, and they'll all Stuart Moxham from the Gisting Marble Jones, and they'll all tell you that the aggravating thing about the label is you would go in there to ask for something. This is Rough Trade I'm talking about, and the way the label operated was everyone that worked there had a say in every decision, and that goes from like the floor sweepers to the guys that controlled the stock to mm -hmm. you know the retail clerks and you couldn't get anything done because the general rule there was if one person objected, they wouldn't do it. Um, right. Both the Blue Orchids and the Gist, um, both of the guys behind those bands are, are quite you know, feminist in their views, but both of them had single sleeves rejected because they were perceived as being sexist. Mm -hmm. And when the Pixies years later put out, what was it? Uh, oh God, yeah. Was it Surfer Rosa or was mm -hmm. it the EP? Yes, Surfer Rosa. They, and they yeah. had a kind of an artsy, Bauhaus photo that had an, uh, an attractive nude woman on the cover. And there were like 20 people at Rough Trade that walked out. Wow. Camera was probably a, a, a different place, but Camera was also a, a shambolic label. Yeah, that I, have money I think that's with. why it yeah. sounds quite bad, right? Because it's not you. It sounds quite bad because on the vinyl, they, it's a 60 minute record. Yeah, it's about 50% yeah. longer than it should be. Um, the actual, there are remastered CDs and stuff where it actually sounds pretty good, but the sure. vinyl is horrible. Um, okay. So going back to the music for a second, um, Fliss, um, this album musically, um, yeah. what is, what's the band doing for you at this point? Um, are they, I mean, obviously they're angrier, uh, et cetera. They think it's maybe, think it's their swan song, but why does this album stand up as so many people's favorites? Well, I can only speak for myself and I'm assuming maybe other people will have that same view, but it's the unusual compositions for me. Um, the, the rawness and 
I know Marky Smith, it was, he's always quoted as saying it could be me and my nan on bongos or whatever it is. But this sounds like a group and it is a group. And I always think that about the four anywhere. I don't think it could be a load of session musicians yeah. and Marky Smith. It's it a shouldn't quote, be that. It's basically it's, bullshit, isn't it? Yeah, it's total bullshit. It's the band make it and it's every person has something different to bring to it. And I feel like this album really represents each member individually the drums are amazing on this album i love the drums so inspirational all the rolls and cowbells and all that love it again going back to cowbell which is something i totally didn't oh, i love cowbell so <laughs> <laughs> also this album does have the weirdest pronunci- pronunciation of the word nazi that i've ever heard in my entire life <laughs> which did get stuck in my head and, and i found myself singing it as i was walking around the kitchen which was probably not what i thought i'd be doing I feel um, like, like I did say this in my intro, but I don't think you can listen to this in the background doing anything. It's really yeah. just you have to sit with it. I mean, crack a few tinnies and it's it brings you in. It draws you in. It's really dense. Mm. Um, John Fisher, is this how is this? Is this up there in the top of his, the canon for you? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I'd probably put it up there. There's a few on there, really, that would be the pinnacles it's one of this for me but you know it's just after quite, yeah, it's, it's the last like, two were very pinnacally for me as well <laughs> pinnacally records yeah yeah but the, i mean i think it's in the facebook groups and things they, they love having their polls and they, they keep having like you know which is the best four record polls and this wins every single time um so even though i don't know if i'd call it my favorite full record but um I, I don't know if that's just a typical full contrarian full fan contrarian thing to say because the stats bear it out that the fans seem to like this one the most well wasn't this when the surge in popularity happened though mm. as well so maybe, yeah, maybe the full fans this is their was it yeah, a lot maybe. of people's into i don't know because maybe for people who are following them you know in real time i mean i came you know i came to the fall in the early 90s yeah, uh, and then work backwards to discover these records. Um, okay, so so this was eighty two, and also in eighty two uh, came Room to Live. Mm-hmm. Um, Nick, I'm going to throw this up straight up at you as you you did the introduction. What's going on? First of all, uh, do we have the same lineup? Pretty I'm much. Yeah. No, in fact, I think it's uh, no. Yes and no. So it kind of started with the same lineup, but this is the sort of time that Mark Riley was fired from the band. So he only appears on, uh, I think, a few records on a few tracks on the album, but also, um, I think, Mark E. Smith was kind of doing a lot of quite divisive things here with just inviting different people to the studio on different days. So there are some tracks on the album I think are just Mark E. Smith and Carl Burns playing together, for example. Um, and yeah, it's 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 an odd one this one, but I still feel. I mean, I guess it's, it's, it's maybe one that's more for the fans. If you really love The Fall, they are still, you know, Marky e. Smith is still really spitting out these amazing lyrics. So it's got all that going on. But song for song, it doesn't really have anything that, for me, stands up to their best work from that period. Yeah, uh, I mean, I have to agree with you. I mean, this, I, I was starting to get into them. Mm-hmm. As much as much as I have, don't get overly excited, Nick. And I know, it's, I know this has been a year-long project for you, and I'm, 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 I've warmed to to what I didn't think I'd warm to. But at this album, I just, this one did just sort of disappear. Yeah. Um, no, that's fair enough, though. I think. Um, I mean, it was yeah. The, the feeling was that it was kind of rushed. 
and maybe maybe it was that thing that, you know if they felt that uh, hex induction hours the last record and then Marky e. Smith thought well we've got a chance to do another album here and he just kind of pushed and pushed and pushed to get something else out um you know and this again I mean uh, John mentioned about I think was it dragnet you described as their only record you just say was transitional but this this record is sort of comes right before I think what would be the beginning of another seismic change in how the fall were and how they sounded but you know they still sound like the old fall I was going to say that yeah this I think is the end of the line really and and um it was after this record that Mark for the next few records really said he had not much I mean to, to his friends and people that knew him he didn't really have much left to say and really from this point on to me whether you like the records that follow or not this was Marky e. Smith deciding that uh, he was creatively bankrupt and just mm. trying to do what he could do to keep it going. This has no songs on it, really. There's a couple of things like, um, oh, what's I'm trying to think of something that's on it. Joker hysterical face. Okay, it's got this, I think, a big Mark Riley riff. It's not one of the better songs there, but a lot of this stuff, I can remember it all because I used to play the record loads of times, but very rarely do I go back this to this and give it a listen. I think yeah. it's just the end of the line, really, for the fall. After that, the fall were reincarnated uh, into something quite different. Mm -hmm. That is probably a perfect place to end part one, um, where we will come back in the next part to see what what Phoenix rose from the ashes. So we will be returning in the next pod, uh, where you will hear significantly more of John Fisher um, and also everybody else Hopefully. who's here. Um, Jay Fisher, thank you very much. Cheers. Uh, John Henderson, thank you very much. Thank you. Bliss Kitson, thank you very much. Thank you. Nick. Cheers. All right. Catch you later. I often find that some of the best conversations happen immediately after we stop recording, or just before we start. Something to do with being off mic, I suspect. Anyway, after we recorded this episode, I asked Fliss about something she'd said that had been troubling me, about getting abuse off fall fans in online forums due to the perception that she didn't know enough about the band. Partway through her answer, I started recording again, so we were able to salvage part of the conversation. With Fliss's permission, we're including it here, because I think it's important that you hear this. And by the way, if you are one of those fans who thinks this is appropriate behaviour, this episode is not for you. We've set off on this journey now, there can be no going back, so allow me just to say thank you to all our guests. We had Fliss Kitson of the Nightingales, John Henderson of Tiny Global Productions, and our own Jonathan Fisher, creator of the Temporary Fandoms theme music. Thank you, you are all wonderful, and I'm endlessly grateful to you for your participation. Thank you also to Ewan for taking part in these episodes, despite his obvious antipathy towards Marky e. Smith, but also for his efforts editing it all together, a task I know is making him particularly grumpy this week for various tedious technical reasons. Cheers, Ewan. Join us again soon for part two of our six-episode exploration of The Fall's discography. You know where to find us. I'm Nick Hilditch, and they're putting me away, but I'll be back someday. People listening to The Fall, I was like... Fucking hell. 
I should actually, yeah, listen to that again because I hadn't been back to these albums for ages. But I just read Paul Hanley, Hanley's book and so I started listening to it again. So I got involved with that. And I feel like a bit of a wanker when I'm taking a photo of me with a Fall album, but it's, it's spreading the love and everyone's really into it. And I, I love that there's young younger fall fans coming in like people who heard who got into the fall around like the, in the last three or four albums and they still and they love them and then they go back you know because i came in at, in the 90s and there was already a lot of fall already i had the experience of of like going to university and meeting older fall fans who when i said oh yeah i i i, I really like code selfish and they were like what you, you haven't heard live at the witch trials <laughs> and i got all those records on cassette off these other fall fans and yeah know, and so the idea that there's a right or wrong way to be a full fan is just total bullshit. I feel like most people aren't like that. And most people are like you and, and you guys and open to that. But, um, you know, there is a real judgment of people getting into music later in life. Or, yeah, oh, my God, you haven't heard of that. And yeah. do you even, I mean, I'm sure, you know, there might be people that listen to this and think, why the hell is she on there when she doesn't know? what year that album came this, out. This, this podcast, this, this podcast is not for those people. As an aside, yeah. um, just because mm -hmm. we haven't stopped recording, would you mind if we put this after the final no. credits? Okay. Because I, 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 yeah, I, I was kind of annoyed with myself. I didn't ask you about it because I just think, you know, I don't want it to be like, you know, a hagiography about like Marky e. Smith. I want to kind of, we were exploring mm -hmm. fandom and I think that's an interesting aspect of it. Um, I'm hugely interested. Yeah. I, and I think I was really um, put off by it at the start because I saw my name yeah. in the full forum um, talking. I was being spoken about in a bad in a bad way when I joined the Nightingales and um, Darren had left. And I know a lot of he was big part of that full forum, um, and I got a lot of shit for being this girl joining this band, and. And I only knew of that because I was really obsessive with looking through that forum, even if, yeah. even though I didn't really know much of the music at the time, because I was thought this is fascinating that there's this world of people that are just talking about the fall all the time. Um, and then I ducked out of it after I saw, you know, yeah, yeah. stuff said about me, but you know, I know that's just a one part of it, and yeah. and and being part of the hashtag Full Friday on Twitter, which does sound really wanky, but it's such a nice community, and I feel really welcome into it because, um, yeah, I do love loads of the music, and I'd like to talk about it too. Cool. Yeah, we'll we'll put this bit on after the. Yeah, sorry, because I, I, yeah, I suppose because it wasn't related specifically to an album was why I didn't, yeah, I didn't go there. But I just felt like it was a thing we should talk about. Um, Nick, in your yeah. outro, if you could you re-record it and just say stay with. I haven't done it yet, but yeah, we can. Yeah, so if you could just mention that, and then we'll yeah. just add, add add sort of unedited thirty like two minutes onto the end. Okay, it'd be quite nice. Because uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, there is that thing of some bands, a lot of bands, to be honest, but the the toxic fandom. Yeah. It can be quite, ooh, at times, yeah. It's like yeah. a bit of a boys' club vibe as well with these bands, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Middle-age, aging boys' club kind of vibe. That's and didn't Marky Smith actually say, yeah, the board of league-headed gentlemen? Yeah, the league of bald-headed men. The league of bald-headed men. 
the look back balls and he hated all that as well didn't yeah, he? yeah absolutely he'd hate what we're doing right now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but we're doing it anyway okay. yeah <laughs> i think i'm the biggest look back Actually, yeah, yeah. Temporary fandom just look back bores through and through. Sorry about That's that. Terrible. There's nothing wrong with that though, but yeah. there's is there's also room for you know new people, isn't there? But it's the thing but, you're saying about sorry about about like people saying, oh, I can't believe you haven't heard this, you haven't heard that. Like, there isn't time to have heard everything. And if you want to hear it, it's out there. Mm -hmm. you, you find out about it by talking to other people. And that's what I love, is that that there's tons of like great bands who I just haven't even begun to explore yet. And I think I think there always will be. I'm never gonna find them all. But I'm going to keep trying. Like, like Pokemon. Exactly. Um, but it's even like, like Zoe, who Zoe's on the next one, right? She's on the next part. Yeah. yeah. Of the, Zoe's oh, Zoe, how? No. No, no, no. Different oh. Zoe. I don't think it's a uh, Zoe, you know. But then she was saying, like, when she joined the Facebook group, uh, she initially thought, oh shit, it's a, it's, there's a lot of men. There's a lot of men on there. Are they going to respect my opinion? And yeah, obviously people, people did. But I can see what how there is a sort yeah. of. Oh God, I've got to break through this again. Yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of the women in the Facebook group are kind of lurkers. They don't contribute much, which, which makes me sad a bit. 